uh, turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. As we continue going through this uh, wonderful gospel, we come to another parable today, and this one, goodness, this this one we could uh, this this one touches on some issues that uh, that uh, the world has never, and in all likelihood, will never solve, but uh, we'll at least uh, give it a a quick perusal. This will be the parable of the rich fool in verses thirteen to twenty-one. But I want to. I want to uh, recall the fact that several weeks ago we looked at Jesus uh, at a dinner party with some Pharisees and, and he, uh, he laid it out very plainly to them with a series of seven woes. And then last week we saw that uh, he followed that by turning to his disciples, aka to you and to me, saying, watch out for this yourselves because the same leaven that has destroyed these Pharisees is in your heart and mine. And he specifically called it as the leaven of hypocrisy. And we looked at hypocrisy uh, biblically, which we defined this way, being pleased with yourself for all the wrong reasons. Uh, again, we tend to look at the word hypocrisy and we, we think as well, we're trying to pretend to be something we're not. Uh, while that is uh, an aspect of what we have just uh, defined, the more uh, applicable from Jesus's perspective, especially relative to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not trying to pretend anything. They were completely satisfied. They thought they had arrived. Uh, they thought they were doing everything exactly as they should. And the parable we're about to get to is where Luke then puts us. He says, he doesn't use these words, but what he's saying is here's an example of that. Uh, how do you react and respond toward riches, toward wealth, toward the accumulation of stuff on this planet? And that can become a part of the leaven of the Pharisees, of being pleased with ourselves for all the wrong reasons. Uh, we finished last week by saying, Christian, know your heart. Secure it from all spiritual dangers. And uh, arguably one of the largest spiritual dangers on this world is money, uh, money and things. And as we've uh, encountered this before, and I've mentioned before, Luke, more than any other writer in all of scripture, addresses the issue of money, wealth, accumulation, all of those kinds of, of sinful patterns that can go along with it. And uh, because you and I live in the wealthiest culture in the history of the world, you and I are under the microscope here in these couple of verses, the parable of the rich fool in hopes that we will not be fools uh, with the kind of world in which uh, we live. Uh, the hypocrisy, of course, that would be found in this, I suppose you could trace to pride, but it's, uh, it's a pride that comes from, from this strange and unique allure of money. So let's read this, um, <clears throat> this particular parable, Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21. We'll read through the whole thing first, and then we'll take it apart a little bit. Uh, verse 13 says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, <clears throat> money, wealth, uh, Jesus spoke about this, frankly, a lot more than he spoke about prayer um, because it is that level of, of concern to, to him and it should be to all of us. Uh, why is that? Well, it's because money, uh, wealth, accumulations, uh, those kinds of things are not neutral. Uh, they are a spiritual commodity. They're a power and they have therefore an enormous challenge to us. Os Guinness, uh, those of you who are familiar with uh, his uh, wonderful books, uh, he says there are two great problems with money and wealth. One is insatiability. That's probably the one we always think of uh, as most obvious. That is greed, avarice, uh, pride, all that kind of thing. But secondly, interestingly, he's, his second problem with wealth and money is commodification. And the way he defines that is that everything and everybody is seen as a commodity, something to be bought and sold. As we know, this has included people. It still includes people. Uh, there are many enslaved people over the, uh, over the world's population, even as we meet here today. Uh, so there is nothing beyond the grasp of, of sinful man when it comes to this notion of thinking, uh, I can accumulate anything and anybody that I choose to do so. Uh, here is uh, a verse from Ecclesiastes, chapter five, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You remember the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, <clears throat> something that, that that theme continues throughout the book. Uh, here is the 49th Psalm. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah says this, hear this all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. 
though they call lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Luke 18, 25, we'll get to this one eventually. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, these kinds of quotes you're familiar with, and uh, they fill scripture from beginning to end, as do examples of those who don't heed them. So this is why this particular parable that we uh, take on today is, is very important. So let's unpack it just a little bit. Verse 13, uh, this parable, many of the parables that Jesus uh, brings to his people uh, are encased in wisdom statements from Jesus. The same is true here. Verse 13 begins that aspect. We don't get to the parable itself uh, until verse 16, but verse 13 says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, it's tempting to, to go into what an absolute uh, inappropriate uh, statement that was by whoever this individual was. We've seen Jesus as he moves through uh, his life, his three years here on earth. Uh, in this part of Luke, as we know, he's moving down toward Jerusalem and the cross and all these events. Um, he's surrounded by crowds. The crowds are growing larger and larger. Often he will get in a boat and, and tell his disciples to get in a boat with him and to get away from them. Often he is off praying alone. Uh, here is an instance where I don't know how this, this man gets this opportunity, but a person actually has an opportunity to ask a question of the God of the universe. And what he comes up with is, is this. <laughs> Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, it, it's like having, uh, having an opportunity somehow or other to, to come into a room and seated around the table as Moses, Abraham, Paul, uh, Peter, uh, and you say, uh, hmm, what's your favorite color? <laughs> uh, you don't get those kinds of opportunities. This man, uh, this man injects something uh, very uh, uh, inappropriate and, and uh, inheritance, by the way, in this case, uh, is a context that almost always refers to land. This is not uh, a bank account this man is interested in. This is, uh, this is a land. Land has been a center commodity and will forever be, be so. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, uh, Kenneth Bailey is, is a guy that, uh, that I love reading. He has two books in particular. Uh, this, is, this is one of them, Poet and Peasant. 
Uh, this is actually two of his books together. Poet and Peasant is one of them, and Through Peasant Eyes, a literary cultural approach to the parables in Luke. Uh, he has another one that's, that's larger. What's, what I like about Kenneth Bailey, uh, this is a man of Indo-European descent who lived in the Middle East for more than 50 years. A theologian, uh, a pastor, uh, he, his, his insights are those that I will use so often when we get uh, to the parables. He, he was the one that uh, had so much wonderful uh, things to say about the Good Samaritan, and that will not change as we go through the parables of Luke. Uh, what I don't necessarily like about Kenneth Bailey is he does not seem to have been a reformed individual, uh, but uh, I, we can deal with that. Um, but he is, uh, he's a godly man and he has a lot of good things to say. Uh, he, talking about land and the interest that this particular man comes to Jesus about, he says something interesting. This is a quote from Bailey. He said, then as now, the most sensitive problem in the Middle East is a cry for justice over the division of land. Uh, turn on the news and you see what, what uh, Bailey made that statement decades ago, but uh, it certainly has not changed. And I would suggest that it really doesn't change anywhere. It doesn't have to be the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East has a few unique aspects about it, but, uh, but all are present wherever you find land. Uh, but what uh, we see in verse 13 is, is not so much uh, this man's talking about land that's important as the fact that he's not asking Jesus. He's telling Jesus. He's instructing Jesus. He doesn't show any kind, at least we're certainly not given any sense uh, that this man is careful in his approach, humble in his approach. He comes in and simply says, tell my brother to divide inheritance with me. Um, what he, of course, doesn't realize is that Jesus knows his heart thoroughly and therefore uh, follows with verse 14. Uh, Jesus says to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Now that you is a plural you in this passage. Uh, so Jesus is talking to everybody when he is giving this parable. This man is the one who has brought the question, and he's certainly talking to this man, uh, but he is also talking to each one of us today through this passage as he was speaking to this man and the crowd that this man uh, found himself in. Uh, and as you can imagine, even, even today without any kind of background knowledge, this seems abrupt, and it is abrupt. Uh, this particular way that Jesus addresses him uh, is a sharp, sharp note of disapproval. Uh, when he says man, that, that in particular, this, the word in Greek there is, uh, and the, the manner in which uh, Jesus is speaking, uh, Jesus is rebuking him as you would imagine since the man came in such an inappropriate fashion. Uh, but this man has a broken relationship and he wants Jesus to finalize it. He's not asking Jesus to fix it. That's another interesting thing about this, this question and, uh, and demand that the man comes to Jesus with. He isn't saying uh, something is, is, is amiss between my brother and myself and for whatever reason, my humble opinion is that he has not been fair in the distribution of our father's inheritance. 
uh, why don't you help me get straight with my brother? There's a lot of overtones here with the parable of the prodigal son. Again, two brothers uh, who are very clearly out of accord with each other. Uh, and interestingly enough, over similar issues, uh, the, it's the elder brother who is really this, the, the focal point of that parable uh, who refuses uh, to deal with his father and is angry with his father's grace toward what he considers his profligate brother. Uh, so in a similar fashion here, here's a man who is, who is out of accord with his brother. Uh, but Jesus uh, comes to him and is not going to fix this. He's not going to finalize anything because he didn't really come to divide or necessarily to reconcile either for the wrong reasons. And this man has approached Jesus for the wrong reasons, which we'll uncover in a minute. Uh, so he refuses, Jesus refuses this man. Uh, he's not going to give in and give him what he wants, but he is going to tell him very clearly what he needs rather than what he wants. And that leads us to verse 15. He says to them, look at that plural again, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So again, Jesus looks over this man, if you will, to this crowd he is speaking to and to you and to me today. Uh, and he says, be, be on your guard against covetousness. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I often allude to the seventh chapter of Romans, uh, a chapter in which Paul himself is, is talking about his own struggle with sin. And when you get to Romans chapter seven, uh, Paul in verse seven of Romans seven says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said you shall not covet but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Uh, this notion of, of coveting things, uh, this is what uh, Guinness is, is alluding to when he talks about commodification. Uh, the tendency that, that when we want and we, we can never quite get enough, whether it's money, money is, is being talked about front and center in this little parable. Uh, but what Paul goes to is, uh, is, is uh, what Guinness touches on there. Uh, I come to want any number of things. Uh, and uh, money is, is one of them, perhaps uh, the one we can all get to easiest. Uh, but Jesus says again, take care, be on your guard against all covenants for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What does life consist of according to Jesus? Uh, some beautiful references to this that uh, the apostle John will give us. In John chapter 20, we often call this the purpose statement of the book, but John chapter 20, uh, verse 21. Um, well, it's verse 31. These are written 
let me get back and start with verse 30 to make a complete sentence out of it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, verse 31, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the essence of life for any human on planet Earth, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, earlier in the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 10, he says uh, this in, in John 10, verse 7. He says, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So uh, the very thing, and, and again, we can multiply any number of, of these kinds of quotes. Philippians begins, Philippians chapter one, uh, verse 21 is the famous passage where Paul is talking about uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Uh, all of those kinds of sentiments are, are wrapped up into this brief little parable uh, where Jesus is going to talk to this man. He's expanding in verse 15 of Luke 12. He's expanding before this man into these people, uh, the notion of money and wealth in particular or land into all kinds of covetousness, any, any kind of thing that I would covet so much that I would go out of my way to seize it and try to have it. And in, in so doing, what Jesus is implying here is that I will therefore miss out on what life is truly about. So reconciliation in this case, what Jesus is going to be talking to this man about is the fact that in order for him to gain anything, he's going to have a completely new perspective, not only of himself, but that there is a greater gain than simply money or land or any kind of inheritance, whether uh, gaining it or losing it. The core issues of this little parable are issues that have to do with justice. Forgiveness, reconciliation, repentance, all these kinds of things. Uh, as that's, anytime you're in scripture, you're always tiptoeing around giant, giant, uh, topics that, that you can fall into. This is one of them in this little parable, this notion of justice. What is just in the case of this man's desire? Uh, what is just in the notion of inheritance, of money, of, uh, of, of what it uh, can help us do, uh, what it can, can not do, all of these kinds of things. And we are, of course, in the middle of giant controversies in the church in America on the term social justice. Uh, as reform folks, we tend to hear that term and we say, ah, the death knell of any church. We don't want social justice. Uh, if by social justice one means, I'm not gonna talk about Jesus, I'm just gonna try to make the world equal across the board, we are right uh, to confront that and have nothing to do with it. Uh, but in point of fact, what do we do with all of the many texts that speak in scripture about issues of justice? 
uh, what to do about the poor and all of that sort of thing. It is all from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, how do we handle this and how do we handle it correctly? All of these concepts are, are buried in this brief little parable about this man as he deals with money. Uh, bottom line with this guy is he's not going to get what he wants, even if he has, even if Jesus were to fulfill his inappropriate request. Have my brother divide the inheritance with me. If Jesus were to do that, that would not help this man. So let's get to the heart of the parable. Verse 16 it says, he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now that brief little intro tells us a lot of important data for assessing this. Uh, number one, these are unearned surpluses that a person who is already rich has been allowed to gain. This is a rich man who comes across uh, this plentifully producing land. Uh, he didn't do anything. He didn't cause the rain. He didn't cause the sun. Uh, he worked, I'm sure, perhaps, or somebody perhaps worked for him. Uh, but uh, it's God who gave the increase. So God has come to this already rich man and given him unearned surpluses. And that produces a problem. Interestingly enough, in verse 17, and he thought to himself, that's, this is the rich man, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. The man, the barn's already full. He's a rich man. He's, he's been successful, as the world would use that term. Uh, his barns are, are full to the brim with uh, all the other produce from his lands. And now he's got a bumper crop to deal with. Uh, so where in the world can he store all of this abundance? One of the problems that you pick up there in verse 17, uh, we'll see it more fully in 18 and 19, but we're beginning to see it here. As we go through verse 17, 18, and 19, look at the pronouns, my and I, over and over and over and over again. Uh, this man's big problem is he's inward focused and that's it. it it's my crop. Uh, it's my land. It, it's my abundance. All of these kinds of thing. But more importantly, and this is something that a guy like Kenneth Bailey will pick up on that we would never uh, ever realize. Ancient Middle Eastern culture and frankly modern Middle Eastern culture is usually carried out at the gate, the city gate. That's, that's where life goes on. The Middle East uh, is, uh, is much more familial than America. Um, I just saw a big 50-pound rabbit go by. I'm not going to chase it. <laughs> not, not yet, anyway. <clears throat> but uh, this man appears to be isolated, which is odd. This is a very unusual person we're seeing here. This man uh, would normally have a lot of friends, and he would be talking about all this and kicking it around with all of his buddies. It uh, doesn't appear that he has all of that. He's thinking to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Uh, kind of isolated, AKA he is already a prisoner. He just doesn't know it. He's a prisoner to his wealth. And uh, he's not uh, picking up on that yet. A man named Ambrose, uh, very, very important man. He was Bishop of Milan back in the fourth century, uh, early mid uh, 300s. 
uh, was very instrumental in the life of Augustine. But uh, Ambrose had this to say, the things that we cannot take away with us are not ours. Compassion alone follows us. Uh, when he was reflecting on this parable, Augustine, his uh, protege that he, he helped so much, had an even more pointed statement to make. Augustine said he did not, he, this man in the parable, did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Now that's beginning to tip the scale of where we're, uh, we're going to go with this. Leo Tolstoy, uh, great, great writer and uh, wrote a lot of short stories. I love a particular short story he wrote read it again yesterday. The title of it is, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And if you read this little short story, it's about this, uh, This he, he begins, the man begins in the short story as a peasant, uh, but he's satisfied. But somebody comes in and dangles a big carrot and he takes a chunk of it. And then he needs a little bigger carrot and then a bigger, and you know how that, uh, how that goes. He becomes a landowner himself. Uh, then he hears about a deal that he just can't turn down. Somebody says, you know, if there's a place, not uh, it's, it's a good uh, couple of days walk from here, but um, if you get there, there's a tribe of, of original inhabitants here that own gobs and gobs of the richest, purest soil I've ever seen, and they'll give it to you. And this man can't turn that down. So he, he takes the journey and he gets there. And sure enough, he's talking with the uh, chief of this uh, tribal people. And the chief says, yes, uh, there it is. They're looking at this, this vista for miles, as far as the eye can see. They're looking at all this wonderful land. And the man uh, says, well, what do I need to do? How do, how do I stake off a claim here? And the chief said, it's simple. You just start walking anywhere you want to walk. And whenever you get to what you want to to uh, signify or, or tell us is, is where you want to turn a corner, or whatever, build a little, a little monument. And the chief says, there's only one issue. You can start anytime tomorrow morning, but when the sun goes down, you've got to be back here. And the guy says, well, that's, that's no problem. So he gets there the next morning. He's, he didn't sleep at all at night because he just couldn't imagine uh, what a deal he's gotten and how foolish the chief is. So he starts walking and he gets every time he's about to stop, he, he sees just over the next hill, a little bit greener grass, a nice lake. And he's thinking, oh, that, that water could, could uh, nourish all the animals I'm going to have here and, and, and keep me, I won't ever have to worry about drought for the crop. So if I walk a little further, I can include that lake in what I own. And he gets to the lake. And of course, just beyond the lake is another little bit. And he winds up, looks at the sun and says, okay, it's a little bit afternoon, but I've still got enough time. So he keeps walking, walking, and he's just sitting there and salivating over all his wonderful land. He's going to get it for free. And you can imagine what happens by the time he realizes that he's got about another hour to go before the sun has set. He's a long, long way from the chief. And he's been much more than an hour getting to where he is. So he starts and he starts running. And just as he gets back to the chief, the sun has just set and he's filled with anxiety and exhausted and he dies right there at the feet of the chief. 
and the chief has some of his friends dig a grave and they all laugh and the bottom line of the, of the short story is, turns out the land this man needed was six feet, six feet deep, about three feet wide and that's all the land he needed. Um, but that's a typical, uh, that tell story, as you may know, ended, ended life by giving away all of his, of his possessions and running a, a, a place for, for the poor and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, wonderful, wonderful illustration of this parable. More rabbits. I know. Who let all the rabbits out? There's so many rabbits running around. Verses 18 and 19. Now here, look at the, uh, look at the pronouns here. And, and he said, uh, the man, the rich man says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Some commentators allude to that verse uh, as the only time the Bible speaks of retirement and it speaks of it in a rather negative uh, way. Uh, I don't know if, about that, but at any rate, uh, this guy is, uh, is alone. It, it's his, everything is his, everything is his own. My, my, my. Uh, very similar to Dick and Scrooge. Uh, you remember that uh, story that we love to watch every Christmas, this man who has also completely isolated himself out of his covetousness because of his greed, because he can't ever get enough. Uh, similar to, to this man. But here's the punchline in verse 20. But God said to him, fool. Now, Luke has four Greek options for the word fool. He chooses the most dramatic of the four. Uh, this is, uh, the semantics behind this word are fascinating, uh, but that's another rap. But at any rate, fool, this is God speaking to this man. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So into this man's calculations breaks the word of God, the actions of God. Uh, you, you man have planned alone, you've built alone, you've indulged alone, and now you're going to die alone. Again, a very, very strong uh, statement he makes here for all of us. Uh, now required, the word required in verse 20, this night your soul is required of you. That's an economic term in the Greek. It's the, it's the calling of a loan by a bank. Uh, here, what God is, is really saying is understand uh, that you, your life, everything that happens to you is on loan. You don't own it. You're not in control. You may think you are. You may want to be. You may act as if you are, but you are not. Uh, and this particular night, your soul is going to be required. I, God, am going to call the loan. Uh, life, in other words, on this planet is not a right that we have, but a gift that is not only on loan from God, but is then watched by God to see how we care for this loan. Uh, we all, I'll speak only for myself, I get a little bit uh, upset at Greenpeacers and people who, who think the environment is everything in the world uh, and who push all of their environmental issues. Uh, however, the Christian should be the best environmentalist on the planet. 
Uh, we were the ones that God gives this garden and he says, I'm gonna watch to see how you tend it, how you take care of it. There is an aspect of, uh, of environmentalism that is absolutely and utterly biblical, but the greatest environmental issue is what we do with our own lives and the lives of those that enter our lives. Uh, there are, of course, ironies abounding here in this brief parable. Man, uh, this guy who is alone is known thoroughly only by God, but he is thoroughly known even though no one else seems to know him. Uh, secondly, this man who thinks he will live for years actually has only a matter of hours. Thirdly, this man who wants to keep it all is going to have to leave it and not only leave it, but he has no idea who is going to receive it. Uh, fourthly, this man who has ignored God is going to have to give an account before God. All of these are lessons for all of us. Uh, now, there's an interesting uh, drift that I found in some, uh, some commentators think that between verses 19 and 20, time has elapsed. I've never read this parable this way. It, it seems to, to flow. Uh, I will say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax. But God said to him, this night is your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? They get that from that past tense there, the things you have prepared. And the, the illustration is the, the real kicker of verse 20 is not that the man's life is gonna be required of him. That of course is a dramatic turn of events, but it's that, okay, you've already, you prepared all the barns, you've, you've got all this excess, You've done that, you've lived your life, and now, even though you have done all of that, uh, what are you going to do? You're lonely and friendless in the midst of your wealth and your creations. I don't have a problem taking both of those perspectives. Uh, now, similar to so many of the parables of Jesus, what is the man's answer? What's he going to say? What, what does he say to Jesus when Jesus says, hey, who made me your judge? I'm not gonna give you the answer to this. I'm certainly not going to straighten out your little squabble with your brother. Well, we don't, we don't know. We don't, we're left dangling. And that of course is intentional uh, so that his silence is going to leave each of us pondering our own lives and hearts. But then Jesus, I mentioned that he encases this parable in his wisdom. Uh, verse 13 to 14, 15, and here in verse 21, he comes back with this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The conclusion, of course, is that you're my life, all of the possessions, all that we have, all that we, not just the tangible things, certainly the parables focused on the tangible, uh, but everything that we have, all the giftedness that the Holy Spirit has given us, what have we done with it? God is looking, God is accounting. He's, want, he's wanting us to use where he has placed us, with whom he has placed us, and what, uh, what degree of, of uh, aspect and gain he has given us in order to live where we are and with whom we are. Uh, so the real problem in this parable is not at all the inheritance, uh, but where, whether we're gonna serve ourselves rather than God, that, that is what this man's problem is. And again, I wanna get back just briefly uh, because I can't stand it. Uh, this notion of justice, we're on the edge of something, something so radical that Jesus is telling this man. He's concerned with the inheritance. I would venture to say that most of us 
are concerned with inheritance issues. Capitalism, which I think is, if, there are a lot of different economic systems. I think it's, uh, it's, it allows more freedom to man than any other, but it, it pushes all of us toward this man because you don't make it in a capitalist environment unless you make it. You've got to get out there and out-hustle, out-think, out-work, uh, go, go to the better college, get the better degree so you can get the better job. From early on, we are pushing ourselves closer and closer to the problem that this man has, and that's not good. You've got to be able to come back from that. Um, the notions of, of justice, when Jesus comes into these situations, he's talking about a completely different worldview than we normally approach life with. We're gonna see this in the very next chapter of Luke. And Luke 13, familiar story, only goes a couple of verses right at the beginning of it. This is another perfect illustration of it. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So some Pilate has, has uh, somehow or other murdered Galileans unfairly, unjustly. And the people have come to Jesus and said, think about this blood. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He goes on, all those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. That, that is an approach to justice that God has that we need desperately to understand that he is sovereign. And when those things happen, when those things come into our lives and we're, we tend to get angry, maybe even at God and shake our fist at him because this wasn't fair, God. Why did you do this rather than that? These are all coming very, very close. They're, they're certainly surrounding this little parable about this man's problem. He's seeing money as his solution. And God is saying, there, you're, you're missing the boat completely about what this life is all about. Um, Romeo and Juliet concludes, uh, you, we're uh, familiar with this story. Uh, there's a guy named, named uh, Tybalt who kills Mercutio. Romeo then kills Tybalt, who's a relative of the Capulets. The Capulets are Juliet's parents. So now we've got two dead men, Mercutio and Tybalt. The two dead men of the body, the two bodies are laid out, a crowd gathers, and with them comes the prince. He's, he's going to arbitrate. Lady Capulet speaks for her family and angrily demands the death of Romeo as the murderer of Tybalt. That would be the... the response that probably most of us would bring to this. She says, I beg justice, which thou prince must give. Each family is, is simply demanding their rights as they see it, self-centeredly, hypocritically. At the end of the play, the same people are again gathered in the presence of the prince, only now there are two other bodies because Romeo and Juliet kill themselves, they kill each other. So now there's four dead bodies. And here's what the prince says. Where be these enemies? Capulets, Montague, 
See what a scourge is laid upon your hate that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love. And I, for winking at your discords too, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished. Uh, that's what happens. All are punished. I'll read that one. Uh, so the point, again, is um, how do we approach issues of justice? We need to see through more biblical eyes and not think that all of life is based on how successful I may or may not be in raising a big fortune because it, there has never been a hearse with a U-Haul attached to it that I see. <laughs> Uh, but much more importantly, I will miss the entire purpose God has for me on this planet if I let money, wealth, possessions to commodify my approach to life uh, to include even uh, wars and rumors of wars, whether they be in Israel, Ukraine, or anywhere else on this planet. Same squabbling, same issues, same self-centeredness, same tragic death for so many. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that, uh, that we will be honest with ourselves and realize uh, that, that gain, meaningful gain is, is only spiritual gain between ourselves, your son, and the power of your Holy Spirit. So we see your plan, your purpose, what you declare justice to be. Help us, Father, to be those who act more justly who are more willing to give our money to those things, places, institutions that are going to advocate the truth of Scripture. Therein is true justice. Doing things for other people in accord with the law of God and the righteousness of God. Father, make us people who will see through the pettiness and self-centeredness and hypocrisy of this world and not think we're fine because we are well off, but to see in point of fact that our assessment by you is based on our hearts, uh, not on our bank accounts or anything else remotely associated with them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.